Over the last decade, connected technologies have conquered our personal space. Smart watches, smart glasses, smart rings, smart toothbrushes or light bulbs, even just smartphones. Standing in the middle of all this tech, little in our daily lives is left untracked. This endless stream of intimate quantities creates those digital representations of us with more insight about us than we do ourselves. Now, these technologies and all the information they gather come to mediate more and more the way we interact with the rest of society. Can individuals leverage the power of data to understand or even change themselves? How can researchers profit from wearable devices to study human behavior? Are these tools transforming the field and its practices? And of course, what ethical issues and social challenges do they bring? Psychologist Christine Parsons has joined us today to discuss wearable technologies, their impact on people, and how she used them in her own research on topics such as sleep, mental health, and mindfulness. I'm Arno. Welcome to the Interacting Minds podcast. Welcome, Christine. Thank you, Arno. I'm delighted to be here this morning. It's great to have you. So for those of you who don't know Christine, she's the newly appointed director of the Interacting Mind Center. There's also a bit of a conflict of interest because she's also my PhD supervisor. She's a psychologist and interdisciplinary researcher who works on matters of parenting, on infant behavior, infant communication, and their impact on parents. And she's also been working on other subjects such as sleep and co-sleeping and does a lot of work using wearable technologies. And that's why we have you here today to discuss wearable technologies, their impact on people, and their impact on research. Mm-hmm. So... My first question to you is, I happen to know that you're quite enthusiastic about wearable technologies. Yes, yes. Could you tell us a little bit about your personal relationship with them? Oh, I could. Um, well, I think my interest in wearable devices started off as a personal interest in sports and um, how we can use wearable devices, personal wearable devices to measure intensity of exercise. I remember very clearly quite a number of years ago when wearable devices were very, very new and I purchased one out of sheer interest. And I went to an exercise class where no one had seen this particular device, but everyone wanted to know what my heart rate was. And at the end of the class, people commented and asked, how high did our heart rate get? As if my personal heart rate had any anything oh. to do at all with how hard they worked. So there was a tremendous interest in using heart rate by the whole entire class to get a sense of the intensity at which we were exercising. Something that, you know, you can have a sense of yourself anyway, your perceived exertion. Um, And from that moment, I thought there's something really interesting about the data streams and people's fascination with types of data that they haven't been previously able to access. And I think my personal fascination started at that moment when I realized just how intrigued people were. Um, And then I guess reflecting on my own level of intrigue as well. So could you tell us a little bit more about that, about how people relate to those technologies and to their their power? How do they use those technologies to get to know themselves a bit better? Yes, yes. I think that's the appeal of devices is getting to know yourself a bit better, getting to know your own behavior patterns a bit better having some quantification of what your day looks like. And this is a huge movement called the quantified self where Mm -hmm. people try to measure with the aim of optimizing things about their life and their lifestyles. Um, I think one of the appeals of data is that we can learn something that is otherwise difficult to think about yourself. Um, We would like to know how well we're sleeping. We would like to know how active we are. And these devices give us really unobtrusive means to gather that data. Um, you just have to wear the device and you can suddenly get information about your OEM sleep. So a type of uh, sleep that we go through um, over the course of every night. You can see if you've had sufficient deep sleep, however that's defined. Um, and I think for a lot of people, when they first see activity-related 
um, information, they realize how little they move around over the course of the day or how few steps they actually get or how many steps, 10,000 steps actually encompasses. So for a lot of people, there's the novelty is a, is a big fascination. And then learning a little bit more about your own body and your own behavior is something I think as humans, we tend to be interested in. Mm -hmm. Is there a bit of a kinder toy effect? So yes. we open the box. It's so fascinating. We wear it for 12 days yes. and then we realize it's out of battery and then we take it off and we forget about it. Yes. Can we use it to change our behavior? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think your description is beautiful because there is the novelty element for a lot of people. You open up a new toy, you have it for a period of time, you're really excited about it. And there are many, many anecdotal descriptions and indeed descriptions in the literature of people wearing a device for a period of time and then the device ends up relegated to a drawer somewhere <laughs> gathering dust. And that's a really typical experience. And in many respects, you can understand why that happens because after a few nights, if you have a stable life and uh -huh. you have routines, your data doesn't change very much. So Every morning, if you have a specific routine of getting your kids to school at a certain time or you have to be at work at 9 a.m., your day looks pretty stable. Um, so there's nothing new. There's no new information there to look at. Um, and the same thing with your steps. If you realize, wow, I do get my 10,000 steps, seeing that information repeated, there's no novelty in it. There's no surprise. Um, so after a period of time, of course, those devices maybe relegated to something that's just not interesting anymore after repeated use. For some people, and I think this is an interesting component about wearable devices, it's not one experience. So some people will find it interesting. Um, they will like to see trends over time. Mm. There are differences in um, how some people are what we call early adopters of technology. They find it interesting. They want to try it out. They want to see what's possible. They want to see what boundaries have been broken. And then other people on the more Luddite end of the spectrum, the technology ignorers would rather not. So I think there isn't a, a one experience of wearable device and tracking behavior. And we also could not expect that giving information to people changes everybody's behavior mm -hmm. in a uniform way either. For some people, there may be a piece of information that can be helpful in triggering behavior change. But we do know that providing information alone is rarely sufficient to motivate behavior change. We see that with things that seem quite intuitive, like giving people the calorie counts on their food. It doesn't necessarily change the choices people make. Knowing that you don't move around very much over the course of the day doesn't necessarily make it possible for you to change the structure of your day either. So information alone, unfortunately, mm. is often not sufficient to change behavior, even if we would like it to be, because then it would be a simple solution. Just give people data and give people information and we will magically solve some um, crises that we currently have. So you, you need information. Yes. You need interest. Yes. And you need some sort of drive for change. Yes, yes. And it for it to be possible to change. I yeah. mean, we live in Aarhus and we can cycle. We have access to really great road infrastructure. We can move during the day. We have great footpaths. We're in an extremely privileged environment that supports activity, physical activity in us. Mm -hmm. That is not the case for everybody. There are really serious environmental differences in different locations that mean no amount of data will support physical activity. Um, those are environmental requirements that need to be changed. Um, but so if it's possible and an individual sees it as something personally salient, um, has the resources to act on that information. And, you know, there are techniques that are effective, at least in the short term, at encouraging activity. Um, seeing kind of little pings of you've reached your step goal. Uh -huh. I think one of my favorite personal experiences was having given my mother um, a Fitbit device and I came home to visit 
And I realized she was pacing up and down in the kitchen. And I asked my dad what my mother is doing. And he said, well, she has lost her mind because she's probably on 9,900 steps and uh, needs to get her steps for the day. <laughs> and I said, does she do that often? And he's like, every night. <laughs> you know. That's... <laughs> so for her, seeing that consistency, seeing that, you know, gold star was sufficient even if it's absolutely ridiculous and will have no bearing on her overall health, just seeing that data, seeing that star on her mm. um, Fitbit page is sufficient to get her to to move around a little bit more in the evening. And of course, again, you know, this is someone who finds that information interesting, um, who's already pretty healthy, um, already gets physical activity, but just thinks it's fun to have those boxes ticked off. And for many people, these streaks, step streaks, reaching a goal. It's fun for a period of time. Um, may not induce long-term activity changes, mm -hmm. um, but in the short term, certainly can motivate you know, some people to change in, in small ways often. So what would be the best to, to trigger behavioral change in collaboration with wearable devices? So what can we do with wearable devices to help us trigger the changes we want. Yes. I think what we have seen over the last number of years with, with digital-only interventions is that if you can add a human, mm -hmm. if you can add a little bit of time with another human who looks at your data with you, who supports you, who gives you an attaboy or an girl, some kind of external support from another human can be incredibly useful in motivating longer-term change. Um, I think this is always a problem with digital-only interventions is longer-term engagement with those. They can be certainly helpful um, for low-level changes or things that are not extremely difficult to change. Adding human support seems to be something that's quite effective across many different domains of health behavior changes. Um, adding humans is my answer. And of course, that requires resources. So... We're in this dilemma of wanting to be able to get effective behavior changes to lots of people. Wearables offer this idea of scalable, mm. automated recording of data and this really appealing notion of, well, if we just inform people, they can change. Um, but I think having a human support element, having someone who cares enough to look at it with you makes it more fun for people. Um so don't just get a smartwatch, also join a running club. Join a running club, have the community, exactly. Mm -hmm. And even when there have been um, randomized controlled trials looking at um, behavior change interventions, again, to adding some element of human support, and I'm speaking quite generally, seems to help a lot with longer term use of devices and longer term engagement with an intervention. Mm -hmm. Exactly as you said, joining a running club, that is the more powerful social element that keeps us engaging with things. Um, and just seeing a, a random Fitbit message congratulating you is never going to be as powerful as your friend giving you a high five at the end of a run or, you know, participating in an event with other people those things are extremely powerful motivators of behavior if they're possible for people. Yeah. So we like having those devices because they create tracks of what we did. Yes. We can feel good looking at them. Yes. And we can understand ourselves a little better. But you're a researcher. Mm. You want to understand humans at large, not just yourself. Yes. Can you give us a bit of examples of how you've used wearable devices in your research? Yes. Um... So in one project I initially started, I really thought that Fitbits would give me wonderful data on people's behavior. I was interested in looking at sleep patterns um, and activity patterns where people um, took part in mindfulness-based stress reduction as a program. And what I hoped was to have unobtrusive measurements of these health-related factors. So with mindfulness-based stress reduction, there is a lot of data now emerging to say that um, there are stress-reducing benefits. But we know, for example, that if you sleep better, your sleep impacts your stress level. If you're physically active, 
that actually can reduce your stress level as well. So I kind of thought this could be a really neat way of um, getting data that wouldn't burden participants. They could just wear these devices for me um, and I could get at maybe some of the underlying mechanisms. So why mindfulness-based stress reduction is having these potentially beneficial effects. And it was unfortunate timing in many ways, this first study that I tried to run, because we had significant law changes. Um, this is the legal framework of data protection. And we had to actually stop with this particular study because we didn't know how to use these commercial devices within the new um, GDPR yeah. rules. Um, and this has been a recurring issue. These issues of data privacy, who holds the data, yeah. where is the data stored? And we're only starting to really figure some of these issues out in um, Denmark and in other countries. Um, so it was a real issue, the timing of that particular study. And I've had a lot more success with using smartphones to measure people's behavior. Um, and in a sense, a smartphone might not be what you consider a wearable device, but if you think of where smartphones are positioned in relation to your body a lot of the time, many people are carrying their, yeah. their smartphone in their pocket and it is an incredibly powerful device. And in some ways, smartphones can actually be more useful as a tool for participant recordings than an additional device that requires people to keep them charged, remember to wear them and so on. So I've used smartphone devices in a number of recent studies to look at behavior that can be quite tricky to access and record otherwise, or quite burdensome for people to keep diaries. Um, so this has been, I guess, a move away from my initial excitement about using wearable devices um, some people have managed to do it successfully. Of course, there are lots of studies using Fitbits. Um, but for me, the using smartphones has actually been a more straightforward endeavor, particularly in Denmark. Yeah. So you're getting even closer to people's intimacy in a way, because yes. those are not just devices made for you to collect data no. about people. They're using them in their daily lives for various things. Yes. Yes. And you know, you can access pieces of information from people's phones that many people are not aware of or mm. they don't notice that that data is always being recorded. I mean, on smartphones from Apple, Android, um, your steps are being measured, your light exposure, your battery usage, all of those things can be pulled from inbuilt sensors. Your battery charging behavior, for example, is always um, available and you can, that can tell us a little bit about the rhythmicity of your day. So how stable your daily routines are. If you're charging your phone every time at the same time of the day and your battery usage is roughly equivalent every day, we can see more stable patterns in someone's lives. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, your Apple um, smartphone is always trying to estimate the activity you're engaged in. If you're running, if you're biking, it is using built-in um, sensors in the phone to estimate that all the time. So there are things being recorded on your phone and those things are incredibly useful for researchers to know about if we want to look at activity and sleep on a larger scale. Um, so using that type of technology that people already have um, is a way that many people are trying to go at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, how do we deal with agreement and data agreement? How do we get people's approval for using this type of data? Yes, so at the moment, many, many researchers go for a model where we will enroll people in a study and then from, from that moment on, we try and collect data from their phones and you might, for example, as a researcher, have a custom-built smartphone app where you try and explain to people what data you'd like to use well in advance and give them sufficient time to, to understand what information will be pulled from their devices. So that's kind of the more traditional way. More recently, people have been doing what is called a retrospective data pull. Um, and that is saying, well, this data is being stored by Google, by other um software uh, companies anyway, um, can you send me that data that's already collected from your device 
almost like a, a past history of your mm -hmm. movement, past history of where you visited, because Google records GPS um, from many devices. And some people might not realize how much data Google is actually pulling from your um, your GPS or your where you're positioned in the world. Um, and that information can be really useful um, to researchers and has been used in lots of studies looking at um, behavior during Corona, for example, where people were, how much they moved around, um, things that, again, can be really challenging. If I ask you to tell me about your day two weeks ago and where you were, that's information that's really not accessible anymore for a lot of people because the time has passed. Whereas yep. Google has collected that data. <laughs> Google can tell you where you were, which park you went out for a walk in or which supermarket you did your shopping in. That information is being collated and it can be incredibly useful um, to retrospectively pull that data as well. So that's been um, an opportunity that many researchers are now excited about is you know, we don't need to do it before the study starts. We can pull data um, that's already been collected. Um, so both mm. strategies are, are something that people... It really is a, a backdoor to your mind right. and to your past mind too. It, yes. It's quite terrifying in a way mm. uh, for people who are listening and are thinking, oh my God, looking at their phone now, mm. uh, do you have any advice on how they could... Um, maybe get more information on data privacy mm -hmm. and have a better control of their data flow and data streams. Mm -hmm. So I think looking to see what permissions you've shared across mm -hmm. various apps um, that's under your settings on both Android and iOS and just having a quick look to see who you are sharing location services with, that gives you an insight into how many different apps can tell where you are in the world. Um, you know, there are, of course, pros and cons for the individual of using different apps. You can use that information very well um, yourself if you, for example, ever need to figure out where you were a week ago, that information can be useful to, to retrospectively build up a picture. You may need to figure out where you lost a device from. So there are pros, for example, mm. to having location tracking turned on if you lose something. There are pros in figuring out, you know, where you navigated to, what was a good using Google Maps for those purposes. There are obvious pros. There are reasons people use these devices. It's convenient. It's straightforward. But by using them without turning off certain settings or restricting a little bit, you contribute to a really big pool of data. So we're contributing, whether we think there's an individual risk, we contribute to the data set that allows other types of surveillance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the... When we talk about surveillance and using this type of data in a scale way, in a big scale way, people often say, well, I have nothing to hide. But often it's not about the risk to you as an individual. It's about the building of bigger systems where other individuals who are more vulnerable perhaps can be monitored. Yeah. So it's that kind of asterisk that I would bear in mind when we um, tick all of the permissions on various apps. Um, I'm no expert on... Um, the security settings and on across phones and what the possibilities currently are. But I do know that most people, when they're accepting terms and conditions, those terms and conditions are almost deliberately really long and very yeah. difficult to understand. They don't give you a, a bullet point summary. <laughs> um, like we would do when we, yeah. as researchers, set up an app. Exactly. Tell you exactly what kind of data we're yeah. using and why. Yeah, yeah. We try and do that in ways that are immediately understandable. Mm -hmm. A 10 page document, nobody reads those. And I think the younger generations of people have become a bit more aware, a bit more understanding. I think there's a lot more education now about how much we're actually consenting to and a lot of great discussions yeah. about that. Um, this is the usual thing with technologies when they come on the market. There's often huge amounts of excitement. So being able to use these devices is incredibly exciting. Look at all the things that Google can offer us. And then there's kind of a, a learning, oh, 
there's some risks involved in this and some skepticism. And over time, you hope, and what we often see is corrective behaviors and corrective understandings. You know, that's the optimistic view. Um, the more pessimistic view is that we've already given so much data and companies, large tech companies already have so much power that it's difficult to, to navigate that now for most individuals. Yeah. Are we stuck in a system uh, where companies just gather our data, sell it to each other? Mm -hmm. or do we have any other maybe models for data collection and data sharing mm. that could help us get out of this bit of a hellscape? Mm. There have been some EU projects trying to figure out um, how healthcare providers, for example, mm -hmm. can access devices and data from people's own commercial devices and doing so in ways that are really informing the person of what they're contributing to and the data that they're providing and how it will be used. So there are some models that are very carefully giving people as deep an understanding as they can of how that data will be used, what it will contribute to, um, the benefits for society and so on. Um, I don't know of any specific models more generally that we can look to. Mm. So <laughs> if we go back to uh, the use of wearable or smartphones mm -hmm. in research, mm -hmm. um, is there any findings that you would like to share with us? Things mm -hmm. that you've been able to do? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing that I was very interested in with my colleagues in the UK um, was in sleep and emotions. Um, and this is because when you have a poor night's sleep, we all know that feeling of waking up and being tired, being cranky, just not wanting to do very much or being irritable. So <laughs> we all intuitively know there's a link between how well you've slept the night before and how you feel the next day. Um, and most of the research on this has focused on the negative. So the irritability or the anger or the, the general grumpiness that people often think about. Um, but with my colleagues in the UK, we decided to use a smartphone to try and look at um, positive emotion as well. So positive emotion being, for example, um, you went out for dinner. Um, did you find that dinner pleasurable? And of course, positive emotion along with negative emotion is important for your daily functioning. Because if you're not enjoying things, you're also not optimally being in the world, your mm. well-being isn't high. Um, and of course, emotion is one thing that can be transient, can change over the course of the day. Um, so we used smartphones um, to ping people over the course of the day to ask them about the emotions they were experiencing and how they were regulating those emotions. And we thought this was particularly interesting and a good use of a smartphone because we didn't just have to ask people at the end of the week or at the end of the day, how did you feel today? We could actually ask them at random intervals over the course of the day because sometimes you will not be able to remember a positive experience you had or, um, you know, that we have recency effects in emotion. If you've yeah. just had a ne negative or a positive effect, that can color your, your rating of how you're currently feeling. So using this method can get us a little bit closer to the fabric of people's lives. Um, and we were also able to measure how people were doing in the morning. Um, so instead of giving someone a paper diary, um, their smartphone pinged them and asked them to tell us a bit about their sleep. Um, and again, that allows us to get in the moment recordings and in the moment responses. So we don't need people to try and retrospectively remember how they slept. Yeah. Um, and this paper is coming out very soon. Um, but what we found was that, um, you know, if you had... Um, good quality sleep, you had more positive emotions over the course of the day. And then using the same smartphone um, device, we asked people to deliberately extend their sleep. Um, so try and sleep for a bit longer. And this was in short sleeping adults. Um, so adults sleeping less than seven hours. And if you successfully extended your sleep, so slept a bit longer, we also saw um, small increases in positive emotion and small decreases in negative emotion. Um, so again, this is a method 
that allows us allowed us to say something about people's daily emotional experiences mm. and their sleep experiences um in a way that was yeah, okay it's it does require you to take some time out of your day but we deliberately made the questions short and we can um randomly sample from people's day rather than just asking at the end of the week for example yeah so th we're discussing experience sampling yes right this is what this method is referred to yes mm -hmm. experience sampling um one theme that came pretty often in this season and i think we'll see again and again mm -hmm. is the way technology has not just changed the way we do the science but also our theories and forced us to reconceptualize our ideas of what we're trying to measure is for example, does sleep or does our idea of what sleep is changes if we look at sleep with journals mm -hmm. or if we look at sleep with wearable devices? Mm. I think the big problem with wearable devices is that there's so much hype and so much kind of description of this is going to change our understanding of human behavior. Mm -hmm. And yet, I don't think we've achieved that. Um, I mean... You can look back at speeches from um, Tim Cook in 2013 talking about how the Apple Watch is going to revolutionize healthcare and change how we understand human behavior. And I don't think it has truly done that. Okay. There are some great examples of large-scale um, data monitoring of um, people's sleep times from wearables. And those studies give us some insights into gender differences in sleep. So um, we've learned that, you know, women overall sleep a little bit longer. Um, they perhaps have greater sleep requirements than men um, over the course of the lifespan. Um, women show really specific um, decreases in the amount of sleep time in and around kind of childbearing ages. Um, so we have learned things about collective sleep patterns from wearable devices that would have been quite difficult to measure using traditional surveys, using mm -hmm. traditional questionnaires. Um, the, the big problem with a lot of wearable devices and the opportunity right now to really inform theory um, is that often there's a question of data quality from wearable devices. So we have trouble separating the signal from the noise sometimes. So what is good data and what is poor data? And for example, in my own participants, a lot of them got really irritated when their Fitbit misrecorded their day or didn't give them an accurate picture of their sleep because they were very convinced that they were reading at the time that the Fitbit recorded their sleep. Oh. Um, and this, particularly if you hand someone a device, if you give them the device and they didn't self-select that device, and then the device gives them some incorrect information, people can get quite irate about that. Um, <laughs> they are already slightly sceptic and then the Fitbit has given them a piece of information that is absolutely wrong and you will not get that person to wear a device again because the device is clearly spouting nonsense. And of course, that is a constraint um, with wearable devices is that um, they can measure um, with levels of accuracy some types of behavior, some are easier. For example, if we wanted to get really good step count data, we would be all wearing ankle bracelets because mm. that would be the optimal place to measure steps, not on the wrist. But for convenience, we use wrist-based monitoring. Um, if we really wanted to get good heart rate data where and from a wearable device, we would put heart rate straps on people um, or single lead ECG recordings on people, which are wearable, um, but we don't do it because <laughs> we can't get people to wear these things over longer periods of yeah. time. So there's this balance between the type of data quality that we get from people, um, people's willingness to wear it and be inconvenienced over longer periods of time. Um, and the other big issue, I would say, for wearable devices forming major theories of human behavior, even sleep, is that those people wearing devices often have bought them. They've had the resources to buy them. They can then contribute data pools. Um, but they are a select group of people who 
on average are typically healthier than the average population, yeah. better resourced. So right now we have this period where we are learning a lot about collective behavior, but we have to have an asterisk about the people who are contributing to our current knowledge. They are uh, groups who are perhaps healthier, better resourced. Um, often women actually are adopters of wearable devices related to fitness and health faster than men. Um, so there is there is a selection bias, as we would call in yeah. science. Um, from my own research, I would say that one behavior that I was really interested in that I think we've learned a little bit more about um, from using wearable devices and is more on the lines of theory. In mindfulness-based interventions, we would like people to do a certain amount of home practice. Um, and that home practice is to help with the skill of mindfulness. So you practice various exercises to increase awareness of the body, increase awareness of the breath, increase awareness of thoughts. Um, and those are an integral part of mindfulness-based programs. Um, our measurement in trials of mindfulness-based training programs is typically diary-based. And one of the things that I had wanted to do and been very excited about doing was using wearable device-based recording of people um, and even smartphone-based recording. So when people um, played uh, their audio recordings, because your mindfulness meditation guide is often an audio guide. So we wanted to be able to record um, people's behavior. How much did you actually listen to your audio recording? Um, and what we found, which was quite, I think, helpful, um, is that a lot of our recordings aligned with what people say they do in their paper-based diaries. So we found really similar levels of mindfulness homework, if I can call it homework, being done by participants as to what they typically report in their diaries. Okay. But we did find that people interpreted the home practice in slightly different ways. Um, so even though people practiced for 45 minutes, as is suggested, they sometimes divided up that practice, which can be seen from their smartphone recording behavior. Mm. So, for example, when I asked participants about how they did their homework, they said, oh, it was fine. Yes, I did my 45 minutes. And then looking at their data, sometimes they divided the 45 minutes into three. Um, and that may or may not be okay. Um, okay is probably the wrong word, but it may or may not be optimal for the benefit of that particular session. So, for example, we often draw parallels to exercise. If you go for three 15-minute walks, is that as good as, as a 45-minute walk? Well, it may not train stamina in the same way. Yeah. So participants were doing interesting things that we couldn't necessarily learn from paper-based diaries because people don't fill in. Yeah. Well, I divided it up into three. Um, we also found you know, some interesting behavioral things, um, again, that could inform how we think of um, why people do or do not do their homework. When we ask people, why did you do or not manage to do your mindfulness homework practice? People often say, well, I didn't have time. And that's very legitimate because, you know, the practice can be quite substantial. Um, it's often a 45 minute audio file that you must listen to, must listen to, you're asked to listen to. Um, and that file, you know, finding time in a day can be challenging for people. Um, but we also had, for example, a holiday week during our program, which is when people in Denmark um, will take their holidays and will be at home or will have more time, more hours in their day. And actually, we found that was more difficult for people to do their homework during the holiday weeks. <laughs> really? Yeah. And I think one of the things that we noted there was that people are out of their routines. So mm. perhaps it's not time per se, the hours of day in the day that you have, but rather the routines that you have. And, you know, having a more kind of chaotic day where you don't have to do work. Of course, some people would have children, so their time is still taken in different ways. But I think it points to the importance of routines in a way rather than sheer number of hours. Of course, you need to have some time available to you, um, but often just the habitual engagement with a specific activity 
is what's required rather than um, a necessary focus on creating extra time. It's more creating the routines. Well, that's great insight. Mm, I think it was interesting. I think it was something that we couldn't necessarily have learned from uh-huh. using our more traditional methods. Um, and we were also, of course, able to record things like time of day um, and in mindfulness-based training. It is often suggested um, that you try and do your um, homework or home practice in the morning because it sets the tone for the day. You're also less likely to be um, disturbed by you know, having to work late or a problem emerging over the course of the day if your homework is already done in the morning. So mm-hmm. um, we also found that more people were engaging in home practice um, in the morning. And we have some more data to analyze on whether that predicted the number of sessions that you actually did overall. So that's still ongoing work. Great. Mm-hmm. Looking forward to hear more about it. I had another question. Yeah. One thing is that often you have an app that comes with those wearable devices mm-hmm. yeah. and it gives you some information that's interpretable. Yes. That's really nothing like what is actually collected. Mm-hmm. So there's already mm. a certain amount of assumption that's yes. put in there. Yes. Right? Yes. For example, if I have my Fitbit and I record my sleep, yes, it will tell me from just movement data maybe a bit of heart rate data we don't know their exact model no but it will give me information about my sleep stages yes so what do you think about that about how we 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 definitely need to do that for Mm -hmm. people to actually interpret and understand yes the data they're collecting Mm -hmm. but we're also in putting a certain bias in the way we want to interpret this data yes absolutely and that you see time and time again mm-hmm. with commercial wearable devices and their software. Um, Garmin, for example, gives a sleep score out of 100. Um, and I don't know as a user how exactly that sleep score is quantified. They also give me a body battery. And over the course of the day, I can see if if my battery is being drained. And they mention, well, they have also a stress me- measurement. And again, mm. based on heart rate, Um, But it will tell me or give me a message to say, you are unusually stressed. Would you like to do some breathing exercise? And again, as an individual, I have to place a certain element of trust Mm -hmm. if I see those numbers. There is a balance, I feel, between giving someone a piece of information that's quickly interpretable. Because we all like to have a number that we can have on a scale zero to 100. So body battery zero to 100. You know, you as a researcher, Arno, will probably be very upset because is it really a linear scale if your mm-hmm. battery is at 10%? Is that really kind of a, a linear change or not? Or, you know, the, these, the presentation and the interpretation of that data is done in a way that's as simple and straightforward for people to understand and to get a grasp on. Um, Sometimes that can be patronizing for users. Um, Would you like to do breathing exercises now? Yes. No. No. (laughs) I'm in a meeting. Yes, exactly. (laughs) I am stressed because I have to give a presentation and breathing exercise would not be appropriate for my life right now. Um, I mean... There are designers and user designers, um, user experience designers working in these particular companies that try and talk to people, run studies on what people want. Um, Again, this is the issue when it is run by a commercial company. They are trying to sell products. Mm -hmm. They understand what people, the user, the target user would like to see. and they develop their interfaces. So when you open up the app, what that looks like with an idea in mind of what a person will want to see. As you suggested earlier, there is a specific target group that's more likely to use wearables too. Yes, yes. And with that aim of engaging users, wearable technology companies have figured out what is appealing to people Mm. and what people would like to see. There is also, if I go back to my very first example, sometimes people are just intrigued to see something new, something novel. Um, We often, Garmin have come out with some new models, new watches. And of course, I 
loving these types of devices, immediately wanted one, even though mm. I know very well that understanding my respiration rate is probably not going to change very much. But for some reason, I think it's interesting that I take 14 breaths. <laughs> but again, <laughs> it's not actionable information. Um, and I think this is the, the balance. If you hold this data as something fun, um, as something that you can watch over time in a gentle way. Um, I think that's one use. If you are hoping that um, this device will motivate you when you're not truly motivated to go for a run or get exercise, it probably won't do that. Um, so I think understanding individuals' requirements, uses, desires for a device. There's also an entirely other thing. If you're participating in a study and you're wanting to contribute to science, that's an, another set of reasons for using and engaging with the device too. So I think we take into consideration that there are multiple um, desires, multiple reasons that people will ever um, buy, use, strap themselves up with a, with a watch. And those can be more or less problematic. And with sleep, for example, there are cases reported in the literature now of what's being referred to as orthosomnia. And that's a problematic fixation on sleep. Um, oh. So again, this has come about or is described, there are case studies described where potential patients in the US have come into a sleep clinic very concerned about their sleep because Fitbit has given them a number that says their sleep is poor, um, their sleep score is inadequate, um, indicating inadequate recovery from the stresses of the day. And patients have turned up um, requiring or asking for um, a lab-based assessment of their sleep, um, which in the States is not free. Um, so you're placing burden on the individual patient if they misdiagnose themselves as having um, some sleep issues. Mm. Um, so again, if you have an individual who is anxious about their sleep and is getting information about their sleep that suggests that there is indeed a problem, um, that is one area where we need to be very cautious about recommending devices or not. Um, whereas if you have another individual who's otherwise healthy and thinks it's fun to track and thinks this information is technologically interesting and technologically innovative, they're on a different um, spectrum. Yeah, definitely. Mm. Do you have examples of good data construct design? I don't know that I do. What are you thinking of? Um, for example, you mentioned the battery, mm, the yes. day battery, yeah, or yeah. the stress control over the yeah, day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like those, those things where you take multiple, multiple indicators. data sources mm. and then you integrate them and try to make something that yeah is fun, innovative, mm -hmm. and useful for users. Again, I am cautious about pulling out one indicator. Mm. I know from speaking to a lot of people using devices that this body battery is particularly appealing because it encompasses ideas of fatigue, ideas of how much you physically moved, the intensity of the exercise that you've completed and your past night sleep level. Okay. So it integrates different indicators into one metric, which is what is nice because you get one single number, and then you can look at that number over time. And I think I point at that as a little bit equivalent to weight, because weight, for example, is a metric that people like to track, they like mm. to have an understanding of, but it is impacted day to day by many different things. So your hydration levels, how well you've slept, um, for women, their stage of their menstrual cycle, there are so many different things that feed into that one indicator. And yet that one indicator is useful to people in some senses, particularly if it's taken as a pattern. So if you have an upwards trend or a downwards trend, and I think for some of these indicators that are given from devices, that what needs to be emphasized is the pattern over time and not that individual day level recording. And I think that can be communicated efficiently um, within some of these um, Garmin or Fitbit or these kind of software um, app interfaces. It's possible to to emphasize patterns over time for people. Um, mm. And I think as well, telling people about the stability of their day, um, 
those kinds of things are interesting indicators too. And time and time again, we are just a little bit um, in the dark as to how things are estimated. And in fairness, there are some publications describing the validity of Garmin's heart rate, um, heart rate variability estimation against gold standard measures. There are more and more studies coming out now which are trying to validate, for example, um, you know, how well sleep staging is recovered or estimated by these devices. Yeah. Um, people are doing those studies. Um, and I think the conclusion to date has been that a lot of these are imperfect. Um, but we don't have for example, a lab-based standard of a battery, a body battery that we can compare it again <laughs> against. We don't, as researchers, have that. Yeah. The closest might be uh, some kind of well-being measure. How how are you feeling right now? Type instrument that we might relate to a body battery type measure. We haven't developed those metrics, so we don't have a gold standard way to measure body battery. Um, so therefore, we're a little bit in the dark, whereas we can take measures of um, uh, REM sleep and say, OK, this is what our lab based recording with um, electrodes tells us about someone's REM sleep. And we can say these devices are adequate or inadequate based on a gold standard measure. But when you don't know the grand truth, <laughs> you are guessing. Um, so as appealing as these things may be, um, it should be taken lightly. Yeah. Thanks. I think we're approaching the end of our recording session. <laughs> Before we go, is there a take that you'd like our listeners to remember from this recording? Mm -hmm. One last word mm. or sentence. Wearable technology offers really interesting opportunities to learn about behavior, but the data that we get should be taken lightly. We shouldn't hold it as a ground truth. Great, thanks. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming, Christy. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. This podcast is edited and produced by Kiersey Tilk, Anno Quentin Vermeer, and Savannah Scholz. Music by Simon Kag. The podcast is funded by the Interacting Mind Center Seed Funding Grant. Visit the Interacting Mind Center website to gain access to show notes and further information at interactingminds.au.dk.